Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. And this evening we're looking at the final verses in chapter 11, beginning with verse number 15. And here we've reached the uh, midpoint of this great book of Revelation. If you go back to the beginning of this sermon series, uh, we started this several months ago, and I explained that Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means the uncovering or the unveiling. In the second series of the sermon, uh, uh, sermon of the series, uh, I answered the question, what is the book of Revelation all about? And the answer to the question is, of course, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. It's not the revelation of utopia. It's not the revelation of the tribulation, even though uh, it seems like most people are interested in that particular part. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the millennial kingdom and all these other things. Those things are all included in the revelation, but this is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. And we find that in the first four words in chapter 1, verse number 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, we come to the midpoint here when we get to the close of this chapter, and it seems fitting when we get to this place as we go into the second half of the book that we would have these next five verses here in chapter 11, because these verses are what you call a synopsis of the end. They're a very brief summation of what takes place after chapter 12 on to the end of the book. Now, there aren't any details that are given here, but the Scripture gives a very quick summary of the final triumph of Christ, of the praise of God in heaven, of the final time of judgment and rewards, and the reclaiming of the world for the glory of God. Now, we're going to read these final uh, verses of the chapter, and then we're going to get an overview of the second half of the book of Revelation. And this will take us three sermons to get through these particular four verses. So stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. And we're looking at Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded... And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We thank you for the study that we've had thus far in the book of Revelation. Uh, We thank you for what we've learned in the first half of the book. And now as we prepare to look towards the end of this book, we just ask you, Lord, you'd give us some understanding of your word and what you'd have us to know and really something that all of us as the children of God can look forward to. Bless the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The second half of the book of Revelation begins with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. I want you to go back up and look at verse number 14 again. Here John writes, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. 
I want you to remember that the book of Revelation gives us the sovereign plan of God for the redemption of this world from the curse of sin. God's plan is written out on a scroll that contains seven seals. And this scroll is the title deed to the earth, and it's the method by which Christ will reclaim the world as his dominion. On this scroll are seven seals, and as each seal is broken, there's a new part of God's plan that's revealed. Six seals were broken in succession until we come to chapter 8, and then we see the seventh seal break, break broken, and then with the opening of that seventh seal, there comes seven trumpets sounded by seven angels. Now, the sounding of the trumpet is not just what we read here in these few verses. Uh, things seem to get a little bit jumbled up after this, and it may be hard to figure out exactly where we are and keep track of what's going on. But beginning with chapter 12, the scripture digresses, and it goes back to the beginning of the tribulation period. So in chapters 12, 13, and 14, the progression stops, and those chapters give us a history of the career of the Antichrist. Now, we're now, as we finish up chapter 11, at the close of the tribulation period, but the next three chapters will take us back to the beginning of the tribulation, and it explains in more detail about this man who's called the beast. He's the Antichrist, and he's the one who rules the world from the beginning to the end of the tribulation. Then when we get to the end of chapter 14, we'll actually be right back where we are here in chapter 11 with the very same scene. The trumpet, the seventh trumpet blows, and then the rest of the story begins to unfold. And so what we have in those chapters, 12, 13, and 14, is a look at the Antichrist from the perspective of Satan. Now, what we've been doing so far is we've been looking at the tribulation period from the, uh, from the viewpoint of God Almighty. But the next three chapters are sort of looking through Satan's eyes at the career of his golden boy. But before we come to that narrative, we have these verses in the end of chapter 11. And true to the form of Revelation, there is a break between the 6th and the 7th. There was a break between the opening of the 6th and the 7th seals, a break between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, and then as we get a little bit later on, we'll find that there is a break between the 6th and the 7th vile judgments that are poured out. Now, what these breaks are put into the book of Revelation for is to give the people of God a chance to catch their breath, you might say. Uh, There is so much trouble going on. There is so much persecution. There is so much trouble, so much vitriol against God and his people that God just wants to stop for a moment and just let everybody regroup and then see exactly who God is and who is actually in control of everything that's taking place. Now, people... And the tribulation period would become very discouraged and it would look like that there's no end in sight to all of the woes. But God stops here to give encouragement. He gives them these words to lift their spirits and remind them that everything that's taking place is working according to God's perfect timetable. And eventually, God and his people will triumph. So that's what we see here in verses 15 through 19. The seventh trumpet sounds... Before the trouble begins. Now, God gives here his people an overview. Now, there are lots of bad things that are going to come as we finish out the book. But here God is winding things down. He's bringing the kingdom of Satan to an end. And he's leading his people towards a glorious triumph. 
Now, these three sermons that we have on the synopsis of the end will do this. They will summarize what takes place in the next 11 chapters. Now, we notice then, first of all, the trumpet that sounds. In the beginning of verse 15, the angel sounds. And this is the the sounding of the final trumpet of the seven. And I might add to that that this is the final trumpet that we see in the book of Revelation. As I mentioned ago, this is a minute ago, this is not a, uh, just a moment or a brief moment of sounding, but what takes place under the sounding of the seventh trumpet uh, contains everything that happens all the way into chapter 20 and into the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Now, since this is the final trumpet, though, that generates a lot of controversy between people. As you know, there are some people who believe that the church will go through part of the tribulation, or maybe even all of the tribulation. Now, what we believe is a pre-tribulational rapture. That means that the church is going to be taken out of the world before Jesus comes back, and so we won't go through any of the tribulation period. But there are those who believe that the church will go through part of it. Some of them believe that Christ comes back at the midpoint of the tribulation, and so those people are called mid-tribulational rapture. Others believe that he comes at the end, and the church goes all the way through, and that belief is called a post-tribulational rapture. And part of the ammunition that people use to believe that, uh, as, as proof that the church will go through at least a part of the tribulation is what we read here in verse number 15. And the problem is they confuse it with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now there in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, verses 51 and 52, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and listen, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So since Paul says here that it's the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, they take that to mean the very same trumpet that we find in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, because there it is the last of the seven trumpets. And so if that's true then it would mean that the church will be around at least for part of the tribulation, maybe even all of it. But that's not true, because the trumpet that sounds in Revelation 11.15 has nothing to do with that trumpet of God in 1 Corinthians 15. So this is, rather, a trumpet for judging. The sounding of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't relate to this trumpet. Now, these trumpets that we've been studying, these seven trumpets are trumpets of judgment, whereas the trumpet that we find in 1 Corinthians 15 is a call for the rapture of the church. It's a glorious calling away, a catching up of those that have died in Christ and those that are the living redeemed. Now, it seems clear to us from the study of of Revelation that after chapter 3, there is no church in the world. The church isn't mentioned again until you come to Revelation 22, verse number 16. And there it's mentioned because Jesus is simply telling John that he needs to get this message out to all the churches that were uh, present in his time. Now, if we really want to look at another explanation for the trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we don't go to 1 Corinthians, but rather we go into the Old Testament, to the book of Joel, chapter 2. 
And here's where we find another one of those remarkable uh, prophecies that are in the Old Testament that look beyond the first advent of Christ all the way into the time of Christ's second coming. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. That is a trumpet of judgment. And so that parallels the trumpet that we're reading here about in uh, Revelation chapter 11, because that is a trumpet that that, that sounds out the final reclamation of the earth. And if you go on reading there in Joel chapter 2, you find out that judgment is poured out. So it doesn't relate to the trumpet that God uses to call his people home. But not only is it a trumpet of judging, it's also a trumpet of crowning. So this is a a trumpet that serves a dual purpose. God is going to uh, pour out his final judgment upon the people of the world, and at that time he's going to crown Jesus Christ as Lord and King of all. Now Jesus, of course, is already Lord and King of all, but this trumpet is going to take us all the way up to the time when the King of all kings comes to rule in this earth, on this earth, and a perfect kingdom and perfect righteousness will be upon the earth. And at that time, the whole world is going to recognize the king. So this is the coronation of Jesus. Uh, That leads us then to the second part of the synopsis, which is the triumph of the king. Jesus is right now king of kings and lord of lords, but the world stubbornly refuses to acknowledge it. But we notice that when this trumpet sounds, here's what we read. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Paul wrote in that marvelous text in Philippians chapter 2, that one that we've quoted so many times throughout this study, He says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, even though Christ is King and Lord now, you can walk up and down every street in Ronard Park, And you can find people that don't care about it, they don't know about it, they don't acknowledge it, or they just plainly say they simply refuse to believe that Christ is their king. Now, God allows that now. But one day what he's going to do, he's coming and he's going to put a yoke on the necks of all the people of the world. And he's going to put his foot on their neck and force them to bow down to the sovereign. That is not going to be a pretty sight. Because the way that it happens is written right here in the book of Revelation. This unfolds how that takes place. That's what it's about. It's the unveiling of Christ in all of his glory and majesty. Now that teaches us this, surely. It's far better to surrender to the lordship of Christ right now than it is to wait until later. I mean, when you wait till later, it'll be too late for him to be your lord and your savior and your king. Then he'll become your executioner and your king. And I think I prefer him to be my savior and king. Now, there are a couple of important thoughts, though, to uh, point out here concerning the triumph of Christ. The first one is the surety of Christ's reign. In this 15th verse, it says, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, how is it, then, that 
The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of Christ. I mean, here we have 11 chapters to go. There are lots of things that have to take place, many things that are going to happen until Christ actually takes final control of the world. So how is it that it says at this particular juncture, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? Well, there's this wonderful little characteristic in the Greek language that's not possible for us to see in the English text. The Greek uh, language has a way of explaining this or expressing this that even though this hasn't taken place, it's spoken of as if it had already taken place. Now, we don't have a way of saying that in the English without me going about a long explanation about I've just done, uh, how, as I've just done about how that happens. But the Greek has this verb tense in which when you read it, what hasn't happened is immediately recognized by the way it's said as if it had already happened. And so there's a way of putting this then that the outcome is unchangeable. There is no doubt about this. So it's spoken as done. Now, what that does then, it encourages the saints. I mean, that's exactly what this part of the Word of God, this passage is designed to do, to give encouragement to God's people. And so weary Christians that will be saved during the tribulation time and yet have to endure all of that intense persecution, they're encouraged because here they see that the outcome of what God is doing is never in doubt. Likewise, those that read the Word of God or were reading in the time of John and, and us reading today, we're sure, absolutely sure where this whole thing is headed. And so that's encouragement for us. It's as sure as if it had already been done. Now, did you know that the Bible also speaks of our salvation that way? We have people that say, well, you don't really know if you're saved right now. You, you have to wait till you die. When you come down to the end, then you'll find out whether you're going to go to heaven. I don't have to wait to find out anything. The moment that I put my faith in Christ, that outcome was forever settled. I'm saved from the wrath of God. I'm eternally saved. And I have that blessed assurance right now that God has given me. There is no doubt about where I'm going to be when I die. Now, I pity those who have a wait-and-see salvation because if that's what they believe, they really don't have salvation at all. My salvation is sure because I don't put my hope and my trust and my abilities, my capabilities of holding out to the end. I don't put my trust in any of that. My trust is in the surety of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And I persevere simply because Christ enables me with his divine ability to persevere. Now, if that isn't encouraging, then I don't know how you can be encouraged. At the same time, though, this is discouragement for sinners. It's encouragement for the people of God, but it's discouragement for sinners because you can go out again and you can walk up these very same streets and talk to the very same people who don't believe, who refuse to acknowledge Christ, and you can tell them without a sliver of doubt they will either bow now or they're going to bow later. There's no changing it. There's no mitigation of the outcome. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So that is the surety of Christ's reign. But we also see something else here in these scriptures, and that is the singularity of the world's response. Now notice again, it says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now many Bible expositors have pointed out there that the word kingdoms is actually singular and not plural. It should be translated as kingdom in the singular. In other words, even, even though there are many kingdoms that are in the world, 
Yet all of those kingdoms are consolidated under one ruler so that all the kingdoms of the world are actually sub-kingdoms of one kingdom. What is that kingdom? Well, that kingdom is the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of this world is the kingdom of Satan. So no, no matter where you go, every kindred, every tribe, every nation, who is their king? Their king is Satan. All of them are under his control. The scripture calls him the God of this world because he has usurped the authority of God. And that happened when Adam fell in the garden. God turned things over. He allowed Satan to have his control. And so now he is the king of the world. Recently, there was uh, someone who came up to me and they said, Did you hear what President President Obama said? He said, He said, America is not a Christian nation. America's not a Christian nation. And that person was incensed. Well, actually, President Obama finally spoke the truth without even realizing it. He spoke it with the wrong motive, but he did tell the truth. And that prompted the article that I wrote on July the 5th, Are We a Christian Nation? There is no such thing as a Christian nation. And that's because the kingdoms of this world are all consolidated into one kingdom, which is the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of Satan. Now, God allows human government, but there's not a government of any nation upon the face of the world that is a part of Christ's kingdom right now. And so the question is, is there a Christian nation? Or are we a Christian nation? Well, I, I don't have any doubt that religious freedom came to our country because of Christians. That's the history of our country. Christianity has influenced us. It's influenced our government. But are we a Christian nation? Well, I challenge you to walk into a joint session of Congress and ask them for a vote on this. How many of you, you could say, how many of you will raise your hands or push your button that you say that we're going to rule this nation by the word of God and that only Christ is our king and only Christ is our leader and we will not go against any command that's written in the Holy Scriptures? Ask that question and see what the answer is. And I promise you, that that is a proposition that would go down to a resounding defeat. Because if there's anybody, any politician in the United States who wants to get, to get reelected, he is not going to agree to be governed by Scripture only. But isn't that what a Christian is? I mean, isn't a Christian somebody who's taken Christ as Savior? Or isn't he somebody who has the Bible as his only rule of faith and practice? What we do is we throw the term Christian around too loosely. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a born-again believer. And so a Christian nation must be ruled by born-again believers honoring Christ and his word to be called Christian. Now, neither Christ nor the apostles would have ever supported any idea, any definition of a Christian that's a generic term that refers to anybody who puts a fish on their car and a bumper sticker that says, Honk, if you love Jesus. Christians are born-again believers. Now, you see, the point of this statement is verse, in verse 15 is whether it's singular or whether it's plural kingdoms, the whole world is following their father, the devil. He is the world's boss. He's the world's king. The world is under the kingdom of Satan, and they do not acknowledge the rightful owner of the universe. Now, the truth of the matter is that none of the kingdoms of the world are going to recognize that until Christ comes to break seven seals until he opens up the scroll to the title deed of the earth, and God's wrath is poured out, and then obedience is forced to God. 
Now, until then, there's only one single response that comes from all the kingdoms of the world. They hate God. They hate its Christ. They hate its sovereignty. They hate its lordship. They hate its control. They hate all of it. And they're going to continue to hate it until they repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, folks, you have to realize this, that there are many converted people that are still teaching against the absolute sovereignty of God. Converted people. I mean, there are people who say, well, we don't believe in this whole idea of of lordship salvation. And so they say that you can take Christ as your Savior, but you really don't have to take him as your Lord. Well, if you can't get saved people to completely capitulate to the idea that Jesus is Lord, then how could you ever get the people of the United States who don't know the difference between Moses and Malachi and call them a Christian nation? Now, the singular response from all the kingdoms of the world is we hate Christ and we want nothing to do with his kingdom. But that all changes. There's going to be a different singular response because the word says the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so that different singular response when all of this takes place is that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let me cover one more part of the 15th verse, and we'll be through with uh, part number one of the message. And next two weeks, we'll come back, we'll get the rest of it. But the last part of verse number 15 says, And he shall reign forever and ever. So number three is the timeless kingdom. And he shall reign forever and ever. Isn't that a staggering end to that verse? I mean, that really... When you think about it, it ought to send cold chills up your spine. I mean, here to think that Christ is coming in his kingdom, and he's never, ever going to relinquish that control again. Now, he has allowed Satan to usurp his authority for a time, but God has done that for his own honor and his glory. So I'm often asked the question, well, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil? Or God could have prevented the fall of man, so why didn't he? Now, some people are really messed up on this, and they think, well, the reason why is because God couldn't actually control Adam. And then there are others that I think are really even more messed up because their explanation of the whole thing is that, well, God gave Adam free will, and above all else, his free will must be preserved. Or they say God wanted Adam to love him by his own choice, and so he never wanted to force Adam to obey. Well, that is either a puny view of God or a view of a puny God because it's not the God that we read about in the Revelation. This is the conquering king of all kings. This is the very one who forces all to bow down for him and to, to him and to confess his name. And so we ask, what happened to that God? Well, he got lost in somebody's weird notion that, that God is somehow a slave to man's decision. Now listen, could God have prevented Adam from falling? Of course he could. Could God have stopped evil from entering into the universe? Of course he could. Go back further. Could God have stopped Lucifer from sinning and starting the whole thing to begin with? And the answer to that, of course God could do it. The God that I serve could have done that. The Bible says, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? But God allowed it because in his absolute sovereignty, he knew, he knew that he would use all of it to bring glory to him. Now, one day there's going to be such a display of God's glory that no one is going to say, God, you can't do this. 
I make my own decisions. You have no right to control me. You know, I always wonder about that. I I wonder about people who are afraid of election and predestination because they say, well, you know what that does? That makes man a a lifeless, helpless pawn in 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 the hands of God. Now, I don't preach it that way, but what if I did? What if I did say that? Well, man becomes a lifeless, helpless pawn in the hands of God. Well, my question is, who would you rather have calling the shots than God? I mean, if you've got somebody who's absolutely perfect, who does everything in truth and righteousness, who never does anything wrong, would you want absolute free control over your life? And if you said, well, yes, that's exactly what I don't want God to have that. I want to have absolute free control over my life. Well, if that's what you think, then put your face right here in the book of Revelation because you are one of those who would not bow to God until you are forced to bow. You see, nobody bows with a deceitful heart. God has to change the heart, and then we willingly bow. Now, all that's extra. Let me get to the point I was going to make. We have another question here. Now, we haven't yet come to the end of it, but it says, He shall reign forever and ever. Is he reigning? Well, we kind of answered that question already when we were talking about, you know, the explanation of the tense of the Greek verbs translated as are become, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Let me add a little bit to that. There's a problem that the millennial reign is only 1,000 years. So what does it mean when he says, It says, he shall reign forever and ever. Because after the millennial reign, there comes this brief rebellion by Satan. He's loose from the bottomless pit. He's been chained there for 1,000 years. And then he goes out to deceive the nations once again. And he convinces them to go to war against Christ. Now, I've mentioned this several times before as being an example, an example of the total inability of the sinner to trust Christ without a supernatural, infallible drawing of the Holy Spirit in salvation. It shows us this because after 1,000 years of perfect government, the nations are deceived again at the drop of the hat, just like that. And it's because the human heart doesn't have the capability to come to Christ unless it's overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can write that down because... People who think that salvation is simply going out and handing out copies of the Romans Road and people just make a decision, do I want it or I don't, take it or leave it, you're fooling yourself if that's what you think. Man does not have the ability to make correct spiritual decisions. And the reason for it is simply because man is dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible doesn't say that man is sick. It says that he's dead. And it doesn't say that he's drowning and he's going down for the third time waiting for somebody to throw a life preserver to him. The Bible says that he's dead. That's another message thrown in for free. But here the nations are deceived again. They're deceived again, but Christ doesn't give up control. He started reigning in the millennial kingdom and he doesn't allow even a smidgen of hope for those who rise up in rebellion against him with Satan. They never get past go because what Christ does, he destroys the earth with fire and he brings in the new heaven and the new earth and he continues to reign forever and ever. Now you see what we've come to here is a synopsis of all of that. These verses tell us that it's sure to happen. And at this point, the word of God is showing it, it is so sure as if it has already happened. Now I'm going to close with that and then we'll get into some more of this next time. But if you're saved, thank God that right now you are a citizen of heaven. You are actually living 
in Christ's spiritual kingdom, and you are a Christian nation. You've been made that by your belief in him. You're a part of Christ's spiritual kingdom because Christ rules and reigns in your heart right now. What we need to do is work and pray so that others will become a part of that Christian nation too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the word that we've read tonight. And uh, we're just so uh, thankful that you've sent Jesus into the world, that you've given us the revelation of your mighty word, of your saving power. You've shown us the meaning of the cross and what Christ has done for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you've opened our hearts to the gospel of Christ so that we could believe in you. Uh, Bless in the time that we fellowship together a little bit later. Bless us in this time of singing. May we be thinking always about that mighty kingdom of Christ that is to come when we will also rule with him forever and ever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand.